Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Rick Robbins. And Rick has a lot of stories to tell. He's been in the business for 40. But before we get going with Rick, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a giant supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad to have them on board, and we're glad that Rick was able to take some time to join us. Well, Rick, thanks for joining us. And we always go into these podcasts with a plan, and I kind of have an idea what the first question is going to be, but that plan sort of just changed we were talking off the air and you mentioned that earlier in your career you did some work on the golf course where they filmed caddyshack explain what that was like and some of your memories from working on that site well i went there uh for my company that i was working with at the time nicholas sierra development they were contemplating buying that golf course and uh, redoing it and uh, trying to fix it up it had been in certain amount of disrepair and uh, Rolling Hills Golf Club in Fort Lauderdale, and they uh, had the pool out there with all the big rock work where they filmed the, the pool scene with the candy bar in the pool, and also the caddy shack was actually out there, and uh, I went through that. It didn't take very long to go through it. It's a tiny little building, but it was all overgrown with uh, vines and things, but it was interesting to go in there and see uh, where they actually filmed what I think is one of the greatest golf movies of all time do the scenes go through your head when you're walking around that site do you think hey this is where bill murray said that this is where that happened or does it relive memories of the movie when you're actually on on the site where it was filmed yeah was thinking about the holes they were playing when they were filming in the storm and you know bill murray and in the shack there uh, you know the whole thing it's hard to walk around there and look at those places and uh, not recognize them from the film and it's pretty interesting little place here. Okay, so we'll go back to our plan. Now, in 2017, you wrote a great article for Golf Course Industry about eliminating stroke and distance penalties for out-of-bounds shots and lost balls. Well, that rule was implemented earlier this year. How glad were you to see that rule change? Yeah, it's amazing the influence I have on the RNA and USGA, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm really happy because... You know, when I wrote the article, part of the reference to it was really how do we speed up the game and how do we make it more fair and how do we not intimidate players. And that's one of the things that from a beginner's player standpoint, they really never knew what to do. And, and most players, it seems like, would rather take a beating about the head than hit a provisional ball. So someone would hit a golf ball what may be out of bounds and they would never hit a provisional, and they'd go look for it for the five minutes at the time, not find it, and then have to go back to the tee, except that 90% of the time it seemed like most of them wouldn't go back to the tee at all. Well, I'll just lay one out here and count a stroke. And, uh, so the, the rules were getting really flaunted quite a bit, and uh, you know, depending on who was playing how, uh, you know, it could make a big difference in the game, and it also just seemed to slow things down quite a bit. I never could understand the difference between hitting a ball into a what we now call a penalty area, a hazard at the time, on one side that was a one-stroke penalty to lay it out and you kept the distance, whereas out-of-bounds uh, was 
essentially stroke and distance are almost what equivalent to two strokes a lot of times. Why that disparity of hitting it one side and having a penalty that was different than the other side of the fairway uh, didn't seem to make much sense to me. Rick, how well should a golf course architect know the rules of golf? Well, certainly uh, the rules that pertain to the layout of the golf course and to penalties that you might take because of uh, features that you put there, whether it's ponds or whether you have wetlands and different things there, where you set the out-of-bounds lines, assuming the golf course architect gets to set them. Uh, The architect, I think, really needs to understand those rules that would affect the, the layout and design of the course. When you put penalty areas on the golf course and you route the course, understanding what that's going to do to the various levels of play uh, is pretty important and uh, how the course will play from a time standpoint. And is it going to be very slow or is it going to cause backups and issues in places? So uh, those kind of things are important for a golf course designer to understand. Yeah, golfers now have three minutes to look for a, a wayward shot. Instead of five, they, they can putt with the flag stick in now. As, as a golf course architect, how does pace of play factor into your decisions? How much time and thought do you give that when you're on a site and making plans? It really is a, a bigger factor today where people are thinking about pace of play maybe a little bit more, trying to make sure that uh, one of the big negative factors of golf of the three is you know, expense, difficulty of the game for a lot of people, and the time it takes to play. And, and it seems like, you know, with all the things going on today, uh, kids, you know, events and things like that, the ability to take four and five hours plus uh, to play around the golf is, is getting harder to do. And uh, I think people are very conscious that, you know, pace of play is important. And we need to uh, factor that into, if we're going to grow the game at all, to what our designs are like and the rules. And uh, one of the, I think one of the best rule changes is the ability to ground your club in a penalty area now. Uh, that certainly was a very, very difficult rule to enforce for vegetation where you're not allowed to touch any of the vegetation or anything else around the ball, and it's a foot deep in a wetland area. Uh, those kind of penalties were very difficult to uh, deal with. Now that you have all this pull and influence with the USGA and RNA, what other rules do you want to see changed? I really think that uh, the rule changes, once everybody gets used to them, are going to be pretty nice if they're done. I was surprised that they did such a real sweeping overhaul of a lot of things that uh, we've all looked at. And, uh, I don't know that I really have any other specific rule changes. Like I say, I like the fact that you can ground a club in a hazard uh, or penalty area now. Putting with a flag stick in, I think that essentially is is something that could be a help to the game, but it also can hinder things, too. I've been out there now in the last few weeks since the rule changed, playing with the people here at the club that I belong to, and trying to decide whether you want the flag in or out. Four guys, you get, you know, one wants it in, one wants it out, one wants you to tend it. Uh, It can get confusing, so you kind of need to, Decide, okay, are you going to leave it in or take it out among your group? <laughs> you can do that instead of back and forth, back and forth, or it actually 
uh, can become a more of an impediment than it should be. Rick, you had the fortune of serving as American Society of Golf Course Architects president from 2013 to 2014. What was it like getting to meet with the governing bodies in golf? And what are those conversations like when you, you meet with some of those groups re representing the society that you represent? Well, first of all, it was just a fantastic honor to serve as president of that group. Uh, you know, the ASGCA with all the, the history it has behind it, who has been a member and who is currently a member and, and leading that body for a, a year and, and the time that you spend on the executive committee because it's really a five-year commitment where you serve uh, in that capacity uh, was very interesting. It was a lot of fun to... You know, you attend the U.S. Open and the Masters and different tournaments and a lot of the meetings, the golf industry show and those sorts of things. You're meeting with people discussing things like we're discussing, you know, rules changes and design of uh, golf courses and, and what works and what doesn't. How can we get together as allied associations of golf and make the game grow and, and uh, make it more accessible to more people and a lot of very interesting conversations with a lot of very bright people in this industry. Yeah, speaking of influential people in golf and people that have met, met a lot to the game, you and your family have a connection with World Golf Hall of Famer Peggy Kirk-Bell. What was it like getting to know her? Well, I was uh, about 11 years old when my father started to work for Peggy Bell and, and her husband. Warren, better known as Bullet Bell, uh, at Pine Needles Country Club in uh, Southern Pines. Uh, he'd gone down from our mountain home in the winter where it was uh, extremely cold and he had a hard time deciding what to do there when it was snowing all winter and uh, decided to move to Pinehurst and uh, work for them. And it was great because uh, Peggy and Bullet Bell told my brother and I uh, you guys can go out and play anytime you want. Stay out of the way of the paying customers and don't cause any uh, problem with them. And uh, as long as you move out of the way and uh, stuff, you're welcome to, to play golf. So we would go walk, you know, 27 holes a day on Saturdays when we got out of school and really grew up uh, with an access to a great Donald Ross golf course. It's still one of my favorites in the world. And Peggy was very encouraging. She would give my brother and I lessons every once in a while. We'd be out there at the practice range, and she'd come by and, oh, let me watch you hit a few. And, uh, you know, then tell us about five minutes worth what we needed to do to make it better. And it was uh, great uh, stuff. And, and she was just one of the most personable people that uh, I've ever met. Uh, she never had a bad day, it didn't seem like. She always had a smile and always willing to talk just about anybody that came by and uh, seemed to thoroughly enjoy teaching people to play the game of golf. In your mind, what do you think she meant to the game of golf? Well, I, I think people like Peggy Bell uh, were extremely influential in a lot of people's lives as far as taking up the game and enjoying it. Uh, she gave her golf far uh, big lesson times there, four or five day golf schools, 
and most of the time they were filled with people who were just beginning the game. I think she was very responsible for a lot of people taking up the game and deciding they really enjoyed it. Uh, she made it pretty simple. She wasn't a mechanical teacher that uh, really got tied up in, in a lot of mechanics of the swing so much as what you feel like and, and how you uh, swing the club and I think she really influenced the game a great deal. And being one of the founding members of the LPGA, uh, you know, just her personality and the way she uh, really loved the game and, and fostered it to a lot of people uh, was very important, I feel. Bullet Bell has to be one of the best names in golf. What was he like? He was a little intimidating to me at that time. I was 11, 12, 13 years old living down there, and he was a big guy. He was All-American at Ohio State basketball, which is where the bullet name came from. And uh, he uh, he had this uh, kind of quiet demeanor to him that, uh, you know, being as, as large as he was and everything, and he just kind of intimidated me a little bit. But he was a great, very friendly, very nice person, uh, I, I liked him a lot, and uh, he and my dad spent a lot of time together playing golf, and uh, they uh, they really seemed to get along very, very well and, and had a great relationship. How did spending so much time at Pine Needles as a child and teenager influence your career? I think that at the time, you know, you're uh, too young to really understand uh, just what a benefit it was to be able to play a Donald Ross golf course that was in such uh, original shape that it really hadn't been touched very much at all since Ross designed it. Uh, and, and so I was playing a very naturalistic, minimalist kind of golf course that Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw would be uh, really proud of because basically there was a center row watering system in the middle of the fairways, and that was the only part that was green, and everything else was sand spurs and pine straw and uh, wire grass and that sort of thing out on the edges. So you learn to play a lot of shots from some pretty scruffy lies. And, uh, you, you know, seven iron was what you used, something like that, for most of your chips and pitches instead of wedges. Uh, you just learn to knock it down and put it on the ground and, and roll the ball, which has influenced them the way I see golf courses being designed. I try to implement that type of, of design more where you play the ground as much as possible instead of uh, the aerial game where you're flying everything directly to the flag. Rick, have you had any opportunities to work on a Donald Ross course? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, I remodeled uh, Camden Country Club in uh, Camden, South Carolina back in 1999. Uh, course was originally designed by Walter Travis in like 1923 and Walsh did it and redid it in uh, 1929 and then the next 70 years it pretty much stayed exactly like it was and uh, I did a lot of renovation to it and I was fortunate that uh, Mr. Ross had all of his green drawings for every single hole hanging in the snack bar on the wall there and you Go in there and this is on the blue line graph paper. And it would have all the greens there with the hollows and the bumps and the bunkers and things like that. It would say it was plus four feet or minus three feet. And so I, I was able.
How closely did you follow those drawings? Obviously, the game changes a lot over 70 years. How closely were you able to follow what uh, Donald Ross did? Uh, pretty close. They they needed to redo some of them a little bit. When Ross did those greens, they were actually sand greens uh, and weren't grassed until later. And so the speed of the greens, when you put closely mown turf on them, uh, some places they were just too steep to even hold a golf ball. So I had to do a little bit of flattening out, plus over 70 years of top dressing uh, had made them come in further and further each year. And the average golf course has about 140,000 square feet of putting surfaces on it. Uh, Camden Country Club at that time had 61,000 square feet in total. And the greens were tiny things that had just kept growing in and growing in, and the superintendent would have some areas that weren't quite as grown as he would like, and he would just stop mowing them and let them grow up. And then they'd never go back and put them back like they should be. So, uh, But you could see all the tiny little undulations there, and uh, you, you could tell where the green was really supposed to be. And then with the drawings as well, it uh, made it easy to go out there and pretty much restore them to where they were originally. Rick, your portfolio is pretty amazing. You've worked in half of the states in the United States and 11 countries. What is it, what's the journey been like for you, and what have you learned by working in so many different places throughout your career? The journey's been interesting, to say the least. Uh, growing up in the mountains of North Carolina, I never thought I'd see the places I've seen except by watching television and National Geographic or something like that. Uh, it's, it's been eye-opening to uh, not only travel to a lot of the places, but to actually live in Hong Kong for about a year and a half. Uh, that experience was certainly something that uh, was different. And, and just looking at the, the different cultures and the different people, and uh, most of my travel was in Asia and I had this kind of idea about what it was going to be like uh, going there, and I, I really wasn't quite sure that I felt comfortable doing it to begin with. And my goodness, I go over there now, and I'm, I travel throughout Asia with, with no problem whatsoever, and the people have been extremely friendly everywhere I've been. Uh, I've made some really very good friends there uh, in China and Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, people I still correspond with. and It's, it's, it's been eye-opening to, to look at things from a different perspective uh, and talk to the people there about you know what's going on in the world and uh, what their ideas and thoughts are, as well as just you know, the golf and the sights that I've seen and the opportunities to do some things on some land that uh, was pretty spectacular. Do you still get that? Asia, are you still traveling there frequently? No, uh, I'm kind of about semi-retired, and I'm trying to do things mostly locally now uh, as much as possible. But uh, I was there last year. I went over in March a year ago and uh, looked at a site on Hainan Island that uh, was an existing golf course, and they were thinking about renovating it and uh, redoing the housing design around it. Uh, they're still talking about it in light of the Chinese government 
crackdown on things. Uh, things are pretty slow over there, so I really don't go over there much anymore, but uh, still correspond with a lot of the friends over there, uh, guys like Ernie Wong, who's editor of uh, Golf Magazine China. Uh, he comes over here and plays golf, and I go see him every once in a while. Speaking of working close to home, a few years ago you completed work at Compass Point, which was the first new course opened in North Carolina since 2008, I believe. What was that project like? What were some of your challenges? What were some of your goals? And explain the, the end result you came to. We had a lot of challenges here just in getting the project done. I'd actually started doing master planning on the 2,300-acre site that a golf course is located on in 2006. And then uh, we were proceeding with the design. We had laid out golf holes, 27 holes, uh, had actually had a shaper come in and do some rough shaping to about uh, six or seven holes around the area where people could see what the golf course would look like. And then everything came to a halt 2008, 2009 when uh, the recession hit and the golf course just kind of lay there with nothing going on at all until 2013. Uh, and then Bobby Harrelson controlling interest of the project and he's a local developer here that's been developing for 50 years or more in the Wilmington area. He uh, got it started back and uh, we worked together and, and got the golf course done uh, and opened in 2016. It is an Audubon uh, signature golf course. Uh, we worked a lot with uh, the natural area and the communities in Audubon signature community as well. So the entire site uh, was put into that. We worked with the extensive amount of wetlands that are all over this uh, area. Uh, we have scattered wetlands that, that uh, lie in, uh, in places there that were used for the golf course definition for uh, separating housing and golf. And so getting those all implemented and laid out uh, and agreed to by the Corps of Engineers and the EPA uh, took some time as well. When done right, what do wetlands add to a golf course? How important are they to a golf course in a place like Wilmington, North Carolina, or some of these coastal communities? And also, they're important to a lot of inland golf courses, too. Wetlands regulation varies from place to place because uh, the federal government controls them through the 1972 Clean Water Act, but uh, they also let the local governments and states decide a lot about how they're going to uh, regulate them relative to things like buffers and that sort of thing. So wetlands can be very difficult to uh, work around at times, uh, but they do add a lot uh, from the standpoint of, of, of design features uh, First of all, you have to leave them alone. You're not allowed to, to fill them. and uh, So they are a, a very real factor in, in the land and uh, what you can do with them. Uh, here at Compass Point, they were mostly low-growing wetlands where you had uh, grasses and, and shrubs and things in them and, and not a lot of high trees. So we were able to kind of play across the edges of them uh, quite a bit. Uh, you're actually allowed to mow the wetlands, so you can't 
build them or stump the trees out, but you can mow them. And, and so we use them on a lot of the golf holes out here. They're, they're very much a uh, design feature of this golf course. Rick, you're kind of like a, a goldmine for us at Golf Course Industry. Not only did you send us an article a few years ago about the the rules, you sent us something uh, at the end of 2018, a PowerPoint presentation you did about a concept you have called the Short Game Skills Challenge. I- explain that concept and idea to our listeners. What I'm seeing uh, these days, uh, a lot of us architects, is a demand for more short game practice facilities where courses used to have a, a putting green and a driving range. That was about it for uh, practice facilities, and there are so many more shots in the game uh, that really affect your scoring and, and how many shots you take there that uh, weren't really being addressed a lot of times. So I have started seeing out of my clients uh, the demand for full short game practice facilities, including chipping greens and places where you can practice sand shots and, and so on. And I remember as a kid growing up there at Pine Needles, the fun we had is my brother and I and our neighbors who had kids our age and played golf, and we'd go out in the evenings and gamble for dimes and quarters and put the ball in spots that were just about impossible and try to hit shots from all over the place, out of bunkers, over bunkers, uh, all that sort of thing. And I just had a really good time trying to get those shots, and I thought, well, if I can find a way to make it a fun challenge and get people to, to play those kinds of shots. Maybe they'll they'll actually give a little more time to uh, short game practice. And so here at Compass Point, we have a 19th hole par three, a putting course, in addition to a regular putting green, we've got a nine hole putting course, and we have a chipping green and a sand play green uh, and I took those facilities and kind of decided about having shots from 18 different places that would really challenge the golfer to hit different types of shots, long bunker shots, short bunker shots, over the bunkers, and that sort of thing, and set it up as a game. And we get people together in the afternoons late and have a cocktail party, basically, uh, which raises revenue for the club. And we get 48 to 60 golfers, uh, mostly couples, and uh, they come out and we play the short game challenge from 18 different positions and four uh, over and under par. And I keep it real simple so you're not having to count up all your score. You just say, okay, if you hit it on the green from that spot, that's a par. If you hit it within a certain distance of the flag, that's a birdie. And if you miss the green, it's a bogey. So you just plus one, minus one, or even. And it really has turned into a fun event. We do it about four or five times uh, a year. And the, the members here really seem to enjoy doing that. It's something that even the beginners can do and, and have fun. It's a social event more than a, a real uh, golfing event. Rick, when you look at the golf market in 2019, how vital are quality practice facilities to clubs these days? Uh, extremely so. I probably have, over the last 
three years or so, uh, at least six commissions to work on short game practice facilities for clubs. Uh, Devil's Ridge and Holly Springs, North Carolina, and uh, just completed a short game practice facility uh, for uh, Echo Valley in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, here at Compass Point, uh, working on one at uh, Pine Valley, which is uh, a golf course here in Wilmington, not the Pine Valley in New Jersey, but one of the same name here in Wilmington downtown, uh, doing short game area. Uh, the, the clubs and, uh, seem to be demanding those now. That uh, The players really feel like they're at a disadvantage if they don't have the ability to practice those shots. And I see a lot of people turning to that. Uh, maybe top golf is influencing that a little bit, I think. What is it like when you sit down and work on plans for practice facilities, and how does the process of designing practice facilities compare to designing golf holes? Well, obviously there's a lot of similarities, but there's some differences, too. Uh, one of the things that I've really concentrated on in, in designing short game facilities is the safety issue of trying to implement bunker practice into the short game area. And, and I've figured out that I really need a separate green with bunkers around it to practice that because when you try to put bunker shots into the same area where people are hitting pitches and chips, you know, the average golfer is going to get in that bunker and he's going to blade about one out of every three or four across the green somewhere. And, you know, those come out there pretty hot. And it makes it so that someone's in the bunker and they're hitting, you know, 15 or 20 shots out of there. Anybody on the other side of that uh, is in a certain amount of danger. So, uh, I've made sure that I try to make a separate area for the bunker play that, that they can use safely and not uh, interfere with the other shots that you're making. And, and then trying to also duplicate the character of the golf course that you're on with the short game area so that the player can actually practice real shots that he's going to have out there on the on the course uh, and duplicate those and be able to uh, feel like he's got the same kind of shot. Are you surprised that there is so much talk and work revolving around practice facilities? Does this trend surprise you as somebody that's been in the business for a while now? Yeah, it's a big change. Uh, you know, I've been in the business since 1973, so, you know, right after Lily Mammoth and Sabretooth Tigers stopped roaming the earth. Uh, <laughs> And it's it's changed a lot since then. It used to be in the practice range. You know, you just go out there and put a teeing ground out there and give them 250 yards uh, of open space and maybe a few flags out there uh, in the middle of the range that give you 150 yards and different measurements. And now practice facilities are extremely intricate uh, with target greens and even bunkers in the fairways of the practice range and then all the putting greens, chipping greens. And, and that seems to really be in demand uh, more and more all the time. And people seem to uh, really get into more practice. And 
I think they've gotten into equipment a lot more, uh, you know, trying to figure out fitting for new drivers and irons. Uh, they want the facilities to be able to test those out and, and know how far they hit them. And the, uh, the long leaf uh, T initiative that ESCCA uh, and USGA is uh, fostering right now to really look at the setup of the golf course with the tees and doing that with practice range, uh, I think, is very helpful. Uh, besides some of the projects you've mentioned in this podcast, what other opportunities are out there for you right now, and what type of projects excite you at this point in your career? In fact, the way the golf business has been recently, any project excites <laughs> these days. <laughs> There's but, no uh, such thing as a bad I've golf been... course in my mind either, too. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I played some that were more fun than others, but yeah, even some of the ones, it, it, it's actually a lot of fun at times to go play what you know, people would maybe term as a goat ranch kind of deal. But, you know, some of those courses are really a lot of fun if you just got the right attitude about them. But uh, the projects that uh, I have right now are uh, mostly uh, renovations, like most of the architects. Uh, I'm doing a master plan for this course I was talking about a while ago, Pine Valley in downtown Wilmington. Uh, it's a 1955 course that was actually designed by the golf pro and the owner. And they want to do a full renovation master plan that will probably be about a five-year uh, work there that they'll do the clubhouse and the swim and tennis areas and the golf course to uh, totally revise those. So that's an interesting project. And... Uh, I'm working with the Echo Valley course in Des Moines, Iowa, and just finished their uh, practice facility expansion and redoing nine holes of greens on uh, nine of their 27. And this year or next, we'll probably do the uh, third nine uh, renovation on it as well. Uh, so, and working here with Compass Point, where I live uh, in, in the Wilmington area, and Another course that the same owners uh, have in uh, Beaufort, North Carolina. I'm going to do a bunker renovation there. So, you know, I'm staying active and uh, still giving myself time to play some golf with uh, the guys I live around here. Yeah, what is it like living on a golf course that you designed? How many questions do you get about the layout and other features on the golf course? It helps to have a real thick skin. <laughs> Actually, the members here are really uh, neat to go out there with, and they'll give me all kinds of grief when they hit it over in the wetlands or hit it in a bunker or something, you know, and uh, I'll hear stuff about why is this this way and so on, but all really in, in good fun, and uh, it's, it's interesting to hear the comments, though, when you really listen to it. And, and probably very helpful from a design standpoint to, you know, play golf with guys day in and day out of various levels. And some of them are single-digit handicappers and some of them are 30-plus. And see the different ways that they play it and what they have to comment on and uh, what they do and don't like. And if you listen a little bit, uh, you know, you probably learn some things about uh, 
the game that uh, you, you don't learn from just going out and working with a contractor and building it. You really hear from the people who are actually playing it what they think about it. Have you ever had a member or golfer in the middle of the round knock on your door or see you in the backyard and ask you a question about the golf course or 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 even have a complaint? Have you ever had to deal with that situation? That that would be pretty unique. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've had uh, people I go out and play with, especially for the first time, if they're visitors or, you know, guests and that sort of thing. And uh, we're playing, and I don't usually make much of it everything. And, and then somebody will say, well, you know, this is the guy that designed the golf course. And then, they're, oh, okay, well, <laughs> you know, they'll ask me different questions and uh I mean, they ask things sometimes that are really very, very good questions, and then they'll ask some, like, why did you put these wetlands here? I said, I didn't put those wetlands there. God put them there. I just had to deal with them. <laughs> they, they were already there, and uh, the Corps of Engineers says, thou shalt not touch these under fine of $10,000 of a penalty, so we leave them alone. Yeah, Rick, in all seriousness, though, how rewarding has the career been for you, and how cool is it to kind of see – your work every day. Not a lot of people get that opportunity to just kind of step out in their yard and see the result of their life's work. I tell people I've never had a job a day in my life. I've just had this profession that I've enjoyed that's been, you know, just so rewarding and, and a lot of fun and uh, very interesting. And it has its days, you know, where you're out walking sites, uh, you know, with uh, various forms of reptilians and <laughs> out there, uh, you know, hiking up and down mountains and through some uh, pretty grim places at times and some beautiful places at times. Uh, it's, it's so varied, just the profession, the sites you go to, the places you go, the different constraints you have for the golf course and what owners want to see, you know, whether it's a resort course or a daily fee course or a private country club. And so every site's different, every owner's different. Uh, so, you know, it, it never gets boring because you, know, you always have some challenges to uh, deal with for the land and uh, what it presents to you and how you uh, take advantage of the things that are there and how closely you look at the, the site to make sure that, you know, if you have really nice uh, features out there that you implement those into the golf course. It's been a, a great ride for 45 years now uh, doing what I do and I've really been blessed to uh, you know meet the people I've met in the business uh, work for the people I've worked with uh, Robert Von Hagee and Bruce Devlin working with Gary Koch on a bunch of golf courses with Jack Nicholas the different people out there that I never thought I'd be able to meet and work with well Rick this was a lot of fun congrats on everything you've achieved throughout your career. Good luck with your future projects and keep the articles coming. We want to see you go on another rant and we want to put it on our pages. Well, I usually have something to rant about. So <laughs> I'll send some more as uh, things come along and I see uh, things that are interesting and uh, try to do that.